You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Today's teaching text comes from Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 13. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I will now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you. Good morning. Packed house today. Yeah, that's something to be grateful about. I'm going to get ordered in a second, but while I do, why don't we all close our eyes for a moment and ready ourselves for the teaching of God's word where we get to hear from his story and respond to him. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful for the opportunity to share your word today. Would you not only give us ears to hear, but would you give us the courage to respond? That we would hear your word and it would not return back void, but it would accomplish what you've set out for it to do. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you don't know me, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're joining us today for the first time, we are in the middle of of a series called The Story of God, where we are tracking the story of God, Genesis to Revelation, as unfolded in Scripture. And so you're meeting us at an interesting point. We're actually at a waypoint, like a a mile marker in the story. It's that turn before we get to the next page, the next chapter. And so throughout this series, as we're exploring the story... What we will be doing is pausing as we move from one chapter to another to kind of orient ourselves on the story to come. And so if you're just joining us, we've just kind of closed the chapter on the opening passages of Genesis. We saw the creation and the fall. We saw Cain and Abel. We saw chaos and violence spread throughout all the earth. And last week, Patrick brought us to the story of Noah and the flood and how God had to deal with the human evil running rampant in the earth. And so now one story ends and another story begins. And next week, we'll be zeroing in on the story of Abraham, previously known as Abram, in God's covenant with him. But in all our kind of recap, I want to highlight something. You know, if you didn't know this, I am going to be a father soon. Um, Yeah. I'll assume all that clapping is for Janice. 
uh, my wife. But, and so for the first time in my life, I've had to ask this question, like, what's an appropriate Bible for a child? These are the things I think about. I'm a pastor. I want my kid to read the Bible. I want him to know about God's good story and his word. And so, of course, being really preemptive, I began searching, like, children's Bibles. And I found myself disappointed, partly because none of them were, like, satisfactory. But also, part of that was, like, the Bible isn't meant for kids, <laughs> if you read it, any, any amount. Um, and so what they have to do eventually with these stories is they have to truncate them because some of them get weird. The story of Noah in particular, if you do the chi child's Bible version, okay, this is what happens. The flood happens, we kind of gloss over a little bit why it happens, and the fact that now the earth is littered with decaying corpses, and then we move on to Noah and his family. They kind of come out the ark. There's a rainbow in the sky. Everyone's smiling, holding hands. It's all good, and then the story ends, but if we actually pick up our Bibles, we know the story of Noah. Though there's a glimmer of hope, that glimmer doesn't shine very long. The story of Noah ends with a drunken father, a faithless son, and a lineage cursed for a son's disobedience. And as we get through the story, we're almost kind of frustrated. Because here we thought, as we get to know, Noah's going to be the one. God's reset the world. Everything's going to be right now. Evil's been dealt with. And the moment Noah and his family have a bit, has a bit of freedom, they continue the cycle we've become all too familiar with so far in the story. Chaos unchecked leads to sin. Sin leads to death. And the cycle continues with another family, another son, and another broken lineage. And it's not like we don't know what the problem is. We've been aware of the problem since Genesis 3, if you've been tracking with us. The problem is, if God is the one who orders chaos, we're talking about chaos being this, this ingrown propensity for all creation, all life, to kind of escape its bounds and wreak havoc. But when ordered, produces life, produces generative growth. We, we know that it's only God who could properly order the chaos of the world to bring about life, like he did in creation. Taking the, the wild, watery wastes, bringing them into its bounds, setting up land for life and vegetation to grow, so God can take the chaos of the human heart, order it properly so that our lives produce life. But here's the tension we've been experiencing throughout these entire first few chapters. If that is the ordering power of God is necessary for life, how does a rebellious humanity relate to a holy God? Because if he is the source of the life they need, if he is the source of the life we need, then humanity is going to be, need to be able to relate to this holy God. But there's an issue. They're rebellious. And rebellion and holiness clash. And so better yet, a better question is this. How can a holy God relate to a rebellious humanity? How can a God who in, him, in and of himself is just and good, relate to the brokenness of human evil? And this is the question we're left with in, after the story of Noah. 
And so to answer this question, how will these two opposing forces, rebellious humanity, holy God, how will they interact? How will they live in harmony with one another so that, they, so that humanity might experience life? Well, the clue to that is in the Noah story. If we go to pull that, that, that teaching text up there, Genesis 9, 8 to 13, it says this. It says, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you. And with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you. This word covenant speaks to an agreement. uh, A bond. Kind of more important than a pinky promise, but not less than a handshake. You know, it's a bond between humanity, Noah and his family, and God. And the promise is this. That I will not destroy the earth again with a flood. And then earlier in this chapter, we also learned this, that Noah on his end of the promise, on his end of the covenant, is to be a new Adam, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this word covenant is the answer to the question we're asking. How does a rebellious humanity relate to a holy God? How does a holy God relate to a rebellious humanity? Well, it's through covenant. Covenant... In light of God's propensity, God's propensity to order chaos provides a way for humanity to order the chaos of their own lives and relate to him. And so he establishes these, this, this kind of way of relating between humanity and God and between God and humanity so that the chaos of the human heart can be checked and they in God can find life. In light of humanity's constant bent towards trying to order the chaos of their lives on their own. God says, I will order the chaos by dictating how we will relate to each other. Now, this idea is found throughout the ancient Near East, the the kind of the worldview of the biblical writers. And a covenant was usually between a king, a sovereign, and his subjects. And the, the way this would go is the sovereign would come in and say, I will give you my protection and the bounty of my kingdom if you promise me loyalty, fidelity, faithfulness. And so these kind of ancient Near Eastern covenants are like the backdrop for what's happening here. That God is saying to Noah and to humanity, if you, if you promise me fidelity and faithfulness, if you live in my definition of good and evil, if you order your chaos according to how I order things, then you will have access to the bounty and plenty of my goodness. Anything outside of that, though, leads to death. Actually, it's interesting. In Hebrew, the phrase to make a covenant literally translates to cut a covenant. And this speaks to actually how the covenant ceremonies would go. If a king came to make a covenant with you, he would ask you to round up some animals. They would be ritually slaughtered, cut in half. And then you, the, the servant of the king, would walk through the slain animals. The implication being, if you break faith, what has happened to the animals will be done to you. And so this is the backdrop. That God is saying, hey, listen, I have provided a way for you to live 
generative lives in my order, according to my design and my precepts and my wisdom. But if you leave those bounds, death will follow. And so throughout the Old Testament, this becomes God's way of relating to humanity. Starting with Noah, moving to Abraham, then to Moses and the people of Israel, and then to David. And as we track, as we'll track through the story of God together, these covenants create a portrait of the kind of God Yahweh is, the God of Israel. And this is important because these covenants tell us something about the nature and character of God and in response, the kind of people he is calling to himself. In the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, we learn that God is just and merciful. That God is just, he will deal with evil, but he will also long suffer with humanity. In the covenant with Abraham, which we're going to unpack unpack over the next few weeks, we learn that Yahweh is a God who bestows blessing and flourishing. That to be in relationship with the creator is to have blessing and flourishing. He promises Abraham, I will make your name great, your family as numerous as the stars, though you and your wife are old. In the covenant with Moses and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, we learn that Yahweh is a God who desires holiness and righteousness. And that actually to live in the presence of God is to live as a particular set-apart people. And if they live in such a way, then they would receive the bounty of the promised land. And in the covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, we learn this, that Yahweh is a God who honors the faithful with his proximity and his power. And that he tells King David, I will give you an eternal kingdom, an eternal, someone from your line will sit on this throne forever if you just follow me faithfully. Inside the covenant is life. Beyond the covenant is death. Within the covenant, chaos is ordered. Outside the covenant, chaos runs unchecked. This is the answer. This is the solution. And can I tell you, as we track through the Old Testament story, we'll learn this. That God is always faithful to the covenant. That God is always faithful to his promises. That God is always faithful to keep his word. But the tragedy is that his people are not. Noah gets drunk, and his lack of wisdom breaks a family. Abraham swindles and cheats to try to make God's promises happen. Moses and the people of Israel, time and time again, test God. And even in the midst of his rescue of them, dare to say, I wish we were back in Egypt, even though there they were slaves. And David and his line, just when things get good, just when it seems like you have Solomon on the throne and and Israel is flourishing, his descendants give themselves up to false gods. And the kingdom is broken. And eventually the people of Israel are driven from the land. God is faithful to his covenants, but his people are not. And we know this experientially. If you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, we've all made the promises in prayer. We all say, God, if you bless me, if you do this for my life, I'll serve you. God, I promise I'll give up this thing 
and then we do it again. God, I promise finally in relationships I will put you first. And then after a few months, God is nowhere to be found. God, I promise I'll keep your commands. This time, I promise I'll muster up the strength to finally do what you want me to do, only to find ourselves failing again. This is the great frustration of the human story, that God is always faithful, but we as a people remain faithless. And so this will get all the way to the end of the story of the Old Testament and we'll still be left with the same question. How does a rebellious humanity relate to a holy God? And how can a holy God relate to a rebellious humanity? Let me bring it home for us. How will you relate to a holy God? And how will a holy God relate to you? Because if we're constantly rebellious, then that relationship is constantly broken. We constantly find ourselves outside the covenant of God, outside his good wisdom and reign, outside of his providence and wisdom. We always find ourselves thinking, you know what, these boundaries are actually not for my safety. They're holding me back. And so we think we hop the boundaries that will find life. The grass is greener on the other side of God. And really what we find is the dark side of the moon. That place of utter dissatisfaction and brokenness. And so the question is, in the story, how will God resolve this problem? And so, we continue through the story. As we get to the end of the Old Testament, we'll begin to hear whispers. The prophets begin to whisper of a Messiah, a faithful covenant keeper who will be faithful to Yahweh and bring Israel into blessing. He will be faithful to covet to the covenant where Israel has failed. And so the, the prophets begin to whisper, but it seems like nothing is happening because Messiahs do come. They show up on the scene and we think, finally, this is going to be it. This is going to be the person. This is going to be the moment. This is going to be finally, they'll come and make things right. We'll be free from the yoke of bondage. We'll be reestablished in God's good blessing. And then they're crushed under the heel of foreign oppressors. For our own lives, we finally think we find the, find the person or the thing or the right set of habits. We finally order our lives a little bit. We, we give ourselves over to discipline. Like I, I, find, I, I see this all the time. I, I, as when I was a youth young adult pastor, I dealt with a lot of young men. They're like, man, if I just begin to wake up early and work out and do the thing, then I'll have my life ordered and I'll become the man I want to become. And then they do all those, they do all those things and they're still not the men they want to be. These false messiahs come and go, and constantly Israel is crushed under the expectation that the Messiah is coming. They think he's here. He comes with a sword, and he comes to set the people free, and he ends up on a cross. But then, something unlikely happens in the story. It would be almost as shocking as if you were reading a novel, and all of a sudden, the author steps into the scene. The story of God takes this shocking turn, and it's this thing that anchors the entire story, that over the next few months as we're in this story, this is what we need to remember, that eventually God steps into the story as a human being. Jesus of Nazareth, 
who is in his flesh both the faithful Israelite and the covenant-keeping God. This becomes the answer to the question, how will a rebellious humanity and a holy God have relationship? Well, they find relationship when the holy God steps into their rebellion and suffers human rebellion and becomes part of a rebellious humanity so that he might redeem it. In his flesh, his broken body and shed blood, Jesus, the true faithful Israelite, who is also the covenant-keeping God, becomes the access, the intersection by which humanity now can relate to God. Jesus is the one who is faithful to the covenant. He keeps all the promises where humanity failed and broke faith time and time and time again. Jesus actually keeps faith, actually obeys the Father. And in him, all the covenant promises are fulfilled. Matter of fact, all the covenants we talked about a moment ago are all shadows of what Jesus would do and be. Jesus is the better Noah who brings us through the flood to safety. He is the better Abraham because he is the promised seed that will bring blessing to the nations. He is the better Moses in Israel because where Moses in Israel cannot keep faith, he is faithful to the law and fulfills it completely. And he is the better David who actually rules with justice and mercy, who stays faithful and whose kingdom is truly eternal. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy. He says, when we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. This is the story of God. A faithless humanity and a faithful God and a faithless humanity that becomes faithful when the faithful God steps into the story. Now, this is obviously A beautiful story, but what does it have to do with you? What does it have to do with your story? So here I offer this to you today. Christ himself has entered the chaos of your particular story. That your story where covenant has been broken and you have been faithless, Christ steps into your story, and then on a cross, an interesting exchange happens. Christ says, I know you're the faithless one, but here, take my story. And wear my story like a badge of honor. I know you didn't earn it. I know you don't deserve it. I know the story is not even true of you, but because I'm giving, to, giving it to you, it becomes true of you. So here's what happens on the cross. Christ on the cross becomes you, the faithless human rebel And in exchange, you become the faithful covenant keeper. So how does then a rebellious humanity relate to God? Well, you can relate to God now because when you go before him, God doesn't see a faithless rebel. He sees a covenant-keeping son, a covenant-keeping daughter. And when you come before God, it's not, oh, I got to apologize for who I am. It's actually boldness you could come before God because God sees you as his very son. 
And this is the great beauty of the Christian story, that the Christian story doesn't end with a list of things to do. You ha- the list of things to do that you have to keep and get right in order to experience the greatness and goodness of God. It ends with God in his greatness and goodness taking on your story so you might experience all he has to offer. And know what's even more beautiful about this story? Even when you don't believe it, it's true. We put a lot of stock in our existential experience of things. But know what's beautiful about the story of Jesus? Is that even when you're faithless, he's faithful. That even when you don't keep the covenant, he's kept the covenant. Even when you rebel, he remains obedient. And this is the beauty of the Christian story, that when even I don't believe it, when even when the story doesn't feel true of me, it is still true of you. Because the Christian story is not rooted primarily in your existential experience of it. It remains true because it rests in a person who, even when you don't feel like it, says you are worthy to approach the throne of grace to find mercy in your time of need. And so today, I wonder if that story is true of you. And what I mean by that is not that you have to make that story true. I wonder if today you'd say, yeah, that story is true of me and I want to make that story my own. That exchange on the cross, I want that story to happen to me too. I want to take my rebellious, broken, unfaithful story and exchange it for Christ's faithful story. I want to go from rebellious human rebel to faithful covenant keeper. Because today, if you want true relationship with the almighty God, then it requires an acknowledgement that I've been faithless, but he's been faithful. When we fail to keep the covenant, when, we, when we've jumped over the bounds, Jesus is the one that draws us back in, that orders the chaos, that checks the human heart, so that we might find the generative life of God. And even when we find ourselves breaking faith again, the faithful one remains faithful and our status is secure. In a moment, I'm gonna lead us through three responses today, how we could respond to this faithful covenant-keeping savior named Jesus. But there's something I, I, I want to note about all this is that in a covenant, like I mentioned before, an ancient Near Eastern covenant, it was the subject that walks through the slain animals because in that dynamic, right, who has the power? The king. And so the king gets to say, hey, listen, walk through these dead animals because if you don't do this, if you're not faithful, you're gone. That's how the ancient Near Eastern world worked. Blessing was rewarded with, was, was only a reward for fidelity. But the reward for lack of fidelity, lack of faithfulness was annihilation. But here's what's interesting about the Christian story that speaks volumes. If we were to, do, if we were to imagine the Christian story as a covenant ceremony... The servant is supposed to walk through the slain animals. Let's establish that, right? So in the story, me and you, we're supposed to walk through the slain animals. And if God's a vindictive judge we've created in our minds, and that makes sense, right? We have to walk through the slain animals, and if I mess up, well, lightning. 
But here's the Christian story. That between the slain animals doesn't walk you or me, but God himself. And God says to me, these slain animals, that's exactly what's going to happen to me so it doesn't have to happen to you. I am the just, Jesus is the justice and mercy of God where it meets perfectly so that we can have the freedom we so desperately desire. Worship team, why don't you join me? And communion servers, you can like get like in the wings, but you don't have to come up right now. Today, I really, as I was preparing for this, I felt impressed in my heart to have, make three invitations today. Three invitations. And so all of us in the room, we will respond differently to each of these. The first one is this. Even though we are gathering in a Christian church with Christian people, I don't want to make that assumption. Matter of fact, going, and I think we, we can kind of intuit this, but let me just name it. Going to church and being raised in Christendom is different from being a follower of Jesus. So here's my question to you today. Maybe today you, you resonate with the faithless covenant keeper. You're like, that's me. I break faith all the time. Matter of fact, since the day I was born, I've been breaking faith time and time again. I've been living for myself and my own self-gratification, and it's come at the expense of others. It's come at the expense of myself. I have tried to order the chaos of my own life on my own, and all I know as a result is violence and death. And if you identify with that, then this opportunity today is to do this. is to say, I will confess Jesus as my Lord so that his faithful promises can be mine. That I actually, that exchange where Jesus becomes the faithless rebel and I become the faithful covenant keeper, that exchange that happens on the cross, if that's never been true of you today, today's an opportunity to respond. To say, Jesus, you are Lord, and I am not. You are faithful, and I am not. And rather than that being a source of condemnation, that's actually, that declaration is the key to your freedom in Christ. And so, if you're on this side today, on the, if, if you want to respond to that, there'll be people, myself included, on this right side who want to pray for you. That if you're like, hey, listen, I, Jesus is not the Lord of my life. Far from it. And you've been going to church all your life and Jesus is still isn't Lord. And you're saying, I'm tired of being faithless I'm, and I'm tired of trying to will myself to faithfulness. I need someone to be faithful for me. And that, I want to declare Jesus as Lord. We would love to pray for you and start this journey of discipleship. This, this, by the way, this is not a magic prayer. You pray and all your problems are gone today. This is the start of the journey of discipleship, the start of the journey of faithfulness, which you can walk in complete freedom because it was never dependent on you to begin with anyways. That's amen to that. Secondly, so that's response one, I need Jesus to be my Lord. I need to become the faithful covenant keeper and I need to give him my rebellious story so I can be made faithful. That's one. Two, some of us, we would identify like, yeah, I think that's true of me. I've given myself over to Jesus, and I've made him my faithful covenant keeper. I've exchanged stories with him. But, like, you've never been baptized. 
You know, when, when Peter um, preaches to the masses and acts, the people say, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Baptism is the covenant ceremony. It's the moment when you die with Christ and are raised to new life. And while that might be existentially true of you, because you've put, made that confession of Jesus, but like you've been struggling, like, am I really a Christian? Like, am I really following Jesus? Do you know why God gave us baptism? It's because whenever I feel like I'm not faithful enough, or I'm not doing good enough, or I'm sure where I stand with God, I remember the water and say, oh yeah, I've died and I've been risen to new life. And so there, I, I, I'm going to assume there's some of you in here, I've made that profession, but I haven't been baptized. Can I ask you, to be obedient to Jesus today say, and, and, and get baptized. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, maybe i got to get my ducks in a row first. Or maybe i got to sort some things out in my life. Or maybe, just maybe, and maybe this is true of you. I'm not going to assume it is. But maybe there's someone here and you're just like, man, I've been putting off getting baptized. And I know the moment I do that, I'm actually going to have to live for Jesus. And I'm actually going to have to follow him and die to myself. And I kind of like my old self right now. And even though I love the saving part of Jesus, the obedience part, and you know baptism would be that moment for you that seals the deal, I would invite you, don't, let, don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. So if you, if you're, you say, man, I, Christ is Lord, but man, he's my Savior, but he's not my Lord. I haven't been baptized yet. We'll also be over, I'll be over here as well to pray with you. And last but not least, for those of you, this story is true of you. You're a baptized follower of Jesus, but you need to be reminded of God's goodness. I invite you to this table. Because this table is the new covenant. It's the covenant that was marked with shed blood and a broken body. If you ever wonder why we do this every week, because every week we need a reminder of why we're here. And it's this blood, it's this body, broken and shed for you. And whenever you feel faithless, whenever you feel the shame of sin, come to this table and remember, I have full access to the goodness of God because of this sacrifice. Those are our three responses. I'll pray for us. Then we can come forward. Remember. If you want to get prayer for specifically for like Jesus' lordship or for baptism, come over here. If you need general prayer that has nothing to do with this message, go over here. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus who need to be reminded of his faithfulness, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me pray for us. Lord, on the night you were betrayed, you took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then you took the cup and said, this is the new covenant shed in my blood. Whenever you drink this cup, you do so in remembrance of me. And so this is what we do now, Father. We take these holy gifts and we enjoy them because they are exactly that, gifts that we did not earn, that we did not take for ourselves, but you gave to us so that we might finally, a rebellious humanity can finally be in covenant relationship with the holy God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, come, feast, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Why don't you stand, and we can begin to worship, and come to the table.